and welcome to Darker Corners, the best and only Justice League Dark show. I'm the host, Nick Antoine. Green, red, rot, the universe conveyed via three inextricably bound concepts. Here's a taste of all three. Old business. There's a change a-coming. New business. This will be buttoned and henceforth revisited when necessity strikes. Swamp Thing number zero. To Monsters. Written by Scott Snyder. Penciled and inked by Kano with a K. Colors by Matthew Wilson with a W. Travis Lanham was the letterer. Chris Conroy was the associate editor, whilst Matt Idelson was the main editor. The encroaching cover crawls forward because of Yannick Paquette and Nathan Fairbairn. Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson crafted Swamp Thing out of the tiniest bit of insanity, probably after a long journey on a riverboat. And so here we are, the zero issue. Zero issue of Swamp Thing. Uh, to those of you unfamiliar with this numbering scheme, how could we have gone from the twelfth issue to the zero issue? I thought it was a pretty clever move after about a year's worth of issues. So there would be all the New 52 stuff, for the most part, if it started at the beginning of the post-Flashpoint. started in September of 2011. The following year, September 2012, they did a zero-issue, company-wide zero-issue, that showed the origin points, as it were, of these new incarnations, of these uh, DC multiverse characters. So not only did you have people like Swamp Thing and Phantom Stranger and, you know, Constantine, somehow, Justice League Dark, somehow having their zero issues, you also had, you know, World's Finest and Earth 2, you know, All-Star Western, you had bizarre, bizarre areas, bizarre corners, uh, the darker corners, if you will, of the DC multiverse being explored at around the time, uh, I guess you could say really five years beforehand, because a flashpoint occurred, you know, in real time, as it were, in 2011, even though that those aspects of the universe, the DC multiverse existed the readership, the audience, as it were, jumped in when the flashpoint occurred, when everything changed for every character. So you had a lot of characters who weren't necessarily who they were until the flashpoint. And of course, if you read this issue, you know exactly uh, how this bow is going to be tied. But for instance, you have uh, Batman, five years before the flashpoint. Um, during that five-year period up until the flashpoint, he was rocking, you know, different Robins. Uh, and then once the flashpoint occurred, there was just the one, if I'm not mistaken, it was Damian Wayne. Um, and it wasn't even in the Batman book per se. The Batman book was just Batman. Uh, Batman and Robin and Batman Incorporated uh, were using Damian Wayne. All semantics, as it were. But all of the Zero issues uh, had some form of a regular cover that was just penciled 
and, and lightly inked, prob probably just faded, in the background. And the main character of the issue, whoever the central focus was going to be for the zero issue, bursting forth from the center towards the reader. Uh, so I remember, um, well, I won't even say that one because that's kind of a spoiler for an upcoming episode. But for this one, for this particular episode, we have Swamp Thing in his incarnation, I guess you could say, I think it was like the fourth or fifth issue of this series forward. Might have, might have even been the sixth. It was, it was, it was a bit, if you've been following along. It's been a bit. Um, this is the New 52 incarnation, as you would expect. It's not uh, a Swamp Thing from uh, pre-Flashpoint, you know, years past. This is a fully realized Alec Holland vegetized. Now, the artwork, I feel like I've heard the name Kano before. I must have it. Uh, I know I've seen the artwork somewhere else before. But it's just as intricate as Yannick Paquette's. Of course, in, in different ways. It's got its own, uh, he, he, they've got their own way of uh, depicting the story. And, you know, I gotta say, I love, I love forests. I love any, any tale that takes place in a forest. It's not like, oh, my favorite story is forest stories. I have a plethora of favorites, but one of them is tales that take place in a forest. And if you add to that um, winter tales, you've got me hooked. <laughs> You've got me hooked. I remember when I was a child reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and being fascinated by it, but I still haven't seen those movies. I feel like I was unduly biased against them because I was so heavily into the Harry Potter series, those, well, the books as well as the films, and it just felt like a, a game of catch-up, as it were, um, with that particular franchise. And I just never jumped on, and I feel like I'm, I'm missing out. Just because I know there's there's... There's wintry tales in there. I want to check that out. Uh, but here we are on the first page. There's two things that I want to point out. Uh, one, like I said, we have this, um, the recurring motif of this series of having the panels kind of bleeding together or being separated in very ornate ways. And here we are on the first page. The, the blades of snowflakes are being used as the separator of action. And it's, it's inventive. I've genuinely never seen this before. It could be an homage to something from years past, but I'm going to go on the assumption that this is something completely new. And now there's, there is something else that's worth pointing out, which is at the bottom of this page is where the turnabout is. For, for those of you, as I've said countless times, I don't like spoiling the events of any of these issues. I just like pointing out the cool things, the cool stuff. <laughs> That was a bad pun, but you know what I mean, uh, amidst this snowstorm. But where the action changes is at the bottom of the page. At Really, it's that bottom right panel, or I guess mid-right panel. That's where everything changes. And then the bottom panel, the change has already occurred. But that's not what I want to point out. What I want to point out is the setting. We aren't in, I guess it would be 2012 at this point in this story. We are instead in Manitoba, Canada, 1897. And the narrator is telling us that this is the worst storm in 50 years, in over 50 years, actually. So we can say it's either 1846 or 1847. That's a nice little rough estimate. If it's supposed to be an individual who's of that era, their timekeeping wouldn't be 
uh, the best, even though we're talking about years and not precise times of day. They could have assumed that something happened in 1837 when it really happened in 1847, because, and this isn't a slight towards the character, but the average person wasn't necessarily literate. Literacy was a, a rare commodity up until the 20th century, even though, you know, <laughs> it's the end of the 19th century at the time of this story. But I digress. There's a confluence of events that I, I didn't know were so intricately um, connected, as it were. So, of course, doing the prerequisite Googling, I went down that uh, digital rabbit hole and, and found what was going on in the world at that time and how the world was connected to itself. You know, that underlying theme in all of these uh, Swamp Thing graphic novels. Coincidentally, or maybe not so much so, maybe more unfortunately, the one of the, the more tragic aspects of the Irish famine was going down. And now you might know that as the potato famine or the great famine or the great famine of Ireland. Um, I'm not saying the great famine of Northern Ireland. There's a bunch of different uh, terms for it. But for the most part, we're just going to go with the Irish famine. During that time, there was a large emigration with an E from Ireland to the New World. Being from New York, I usually only heard about Ellis Island immigrants when it came to the United States. It wasn't until I started going through high school and in college that I found out that it was all up and down the eastern seaboard, as well as, you know, the western seaboard uh, when it comes to the Asiatic nations and uh, Russia. There was a, an influx of immigrants as well coming from that side of the country, uh, but the 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 immigration that's pinpointed usually in his history books is from the eastern seaboard. Now that is not to discount uh, all of the Asian American immigrants and Russian immigrants who came over towards the United States from the Pacific Ocean, from over the Pacific Ocean, and helped with the this country's infrastructure. You know, whether it be uh, in construction, uh, construction of buildings, uh, construction of highways, construction of railroads, tunnels, um, store shop owners, uh, independent entrepreneurs that were trying to get their small businesses going, all different walks of life, you know, farmers, everything, everything, and any, any walk of life you could go down. Um, that A big part of that came from uh, the... Asiatic countries, and that just by that I mean, you know, Japan, China, um, Mongolia, Nepal, India, uh, as well as Russia, um, Korea. Uh, yes, because at that time it would just be Korea, it wouldn't be North and South Korea. <laughs> That's uh, that didn't happen until the Korean War, or at least after it. Excuse me, um, but in this particular instance, uh, the events of Manitoba. Canada, 1847, is very heavily tied to the Irish famine. Why? There was a ridiculous winter. It was referenced in this graphic novel. A ridiculously cold winter. That was that was uh, some of the 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 catalyst that uh, gave the uh, the people of Ireland 
the idea like, hey, maybe we should leave this country, that being the cold weather, not just the, the crops not being planted. Um, from what I have read, there was a huge amount of money that went towards um, the populace uh, in, in the, uh, what's the best way to say this? Um, going towards jobs in factories. That was a very big thing. Um, although the United States took a, a long while to get on board the Industrial Revolution, uh, mostly because of the free labor involved and in went into that in fair play pod. Go check that out. Um, even though the United States took a while to get on to that, the rest of the world was already moving forward because they saw this technological innovation, whether it was steam-powered engines or just the, the new innovative ways to use gears in machines and, and not just for you know the Gutenberg press. Because of this, there was a shift in Western Europe a shift in Northern Africa, a shift in Asia, in, in Eastern Asia and Southern Asia. Um, there was a shift away from agriculture and towards uh, a city life, as it were, uh, living in the countryside or the rural areas and commuting via horse and carriage uh, to the cities, if, if it could be afforded. Um, it, that usually would be people who you know, were higher up the, the, the social ladder, as it were, uh, and individuals that were, for the most part, you know, in the business, making sure that uh, everything was still getting made, that um, whatever the product was still coming out of the, the factories or coming out of the, the, the storefronts, uh, they lived within the cities or on the outskirts of the cities. There was a huge push in Ireland, apparently to the, to the tone, sorry, to the tune of do 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 roughly or over five million pounds um, it, by the spring of 1847 going towards giving incentives for the Irish peoples to work in factories and not work in agriculture because there wasn't a, a high influx of imports into Ireland that of course was going to affect the the, the, the food side of commodities, even though you would have you would still have all the other things, you know, uh, wood and uh, clothing and newspapers and jewelry and um, perhaps even dinnerware. I'm trying to think of things that people would want to buy in the 1800s. <laughs> I'm trying to push out, you know, computers and televisions and um, high priced jackets and shows you where my, my mindset is. Um, it, they didn't have as much food coming in, you know, and that's a big thing for the British Isles, as it were, for for the pre-United Kingdom, and even even nowadays, Northern Ireland is a part of the United Kingdom. Ireland is its own separate country. I quite literally just found that out recently. I genuinely believe that all of Ireland was a part of the United Kingdom, and I found out when I was finding out about Scotland deciding to. Uh, pull away from the United Kingdom and become its own separate country, found out that only Northern Ireland is a part of the United Kingdom, and that Ireland has one of the largest uh, GDPs in the world. I had no idea. And I feel like I had heard about that before and just attributed it to all of Ireland and assumed that was, you know, a part of the United Kingdom. No, this is a, a country that's on the same island or same landmass as Northern Ireland. 
But anyway, I somewhat digress. All of the United Kingdom, for a long time, really up until World War II, and even after the fact, because of the, the, the middle, lower and middle class cuisine, as it were, or, or common foods, uh, the foods that's commonly eating, not food for the common people. That sounds really condescending. That's not what I mean. I mean the food that's commonly ate, that's commonly eaten, um, that that you would find in a in a in a, in a pantry, in a in a cabinet. Uh, those foods are reminiscent of the food that was available pretty much directly, in like towards the end of and right after World War Two. Um, so you know beans on toast, uh, tea. Um, pretty much any kind of toasted material, materials that, foods that lack liquid, you know, or, or, or aren't high in the liquid count. So shying away from soups and towards, like I said, you know, um, fibrous materials like beans, or like I said, with toast, what they call uh, cookies are really crackers, what they call biscuits are really cookies. And both of those things uh, tend to be well, definitively are completely absent of water. Uh, scones, uh, a lot drier than just straight up bread. Um, toast, for the most part, <clears throat> was an innovative um, um, luxury that was placed upon the middle and lower classes in the 20th century because of the need to ship bread from one place to another. Instead of having a farm and a mill on your property, because of population growth, you had less and less people who could produce these things and they'd have to go to a store or go to a shop to buy those things. There would be a long travel time and bread only lasts a week, especially if you take into consideration refrigerators didn't even become a household item until really after World War II. They existed before World War II, but they were so expensive people still got in blocks of ice. Like it, it, you know, Freon wasn't going through the back of the air conditioner and, and supplying a constant supply of cold air to both the bottom and top part of that appliance, gigantic appliance. For the most part, if you could afford it, you could get varying sizes of blocks of ice that could be delivered to your house. But since the average person would have to have some form of a cellar where they could store things like that, having bread and fresh bread was something that you would that would be reserved for special occasions or at restaurants. That, coupled with a lot of different economic factors, led to the the impetus of the of different sections within the Irish society to completely um, abandon. That that sounds like a harsh word. To completely uh, uproot. There you go. Nice pun and make their way to the new world, looking for a, a, a new lease on life. There seemed like so much opportunity over there. Unfortunately, that was coinciding with a horrible winter, a horrible winter. Um, this, this particular winter ended up boosting the population of the United States. So much so that Central America um, Mexico and the Canadian territories ended up having an, an influx of a population because the different city centers had quotas. 
they had a certain amount of people that they were only a certain amount of people they were allowing in. And, you know, damn near every country, if not every country in the world still does that. The United States is very adamant about maintaining that for the most part, because we're not too apt uh, when it comes to change, when it comes to doing something different than we've done before. And the system that we're rocking now is pretty much the one we put in place right before the Korean War. And that's pretty much across the board. That's evidenced by any government office that you go into. They have computers there, but the fact that they still use paperwork, the fact that, and, and not necessarily recycled paper, paper coming off of reams, um, you know, and cut properly to the eight and a half by 11. The fact that we still use paper and everybody has a smartphone in their pocket. Um, everybody, damn near, everybody has a computer at their home. If not a computer, you know, a desktop, some form of a laptop or netbook or a tablet, everybody has access to digital paper, as it were. The fact that our governmental infrastructure still heavily relies upon paper under the bizarre auspices that paper is more permanent than digital ones and zeros. Um, the argument being against switching over to digital uh, material is that, oh, there could be a power outage or there could be a flood. Okay, that's a risk that you should be willing to take because there could be a fire in the office if that paper gets burned to a crisp, to, to ashes. There's no way it could be reconstructed. If there's a power outage, you just need to get the power turned back on and you're good to go. This isn't the 1990s where you turn something off and you lose all the information from your database. It doesn't work that way. Information is stored vastly in servers world round. There isn't a copy of anything that's been copied online that only exists as a single copy. Where there's an original somewhere in a copy and that's it. There are multiple copies of everything everywhere. So this idea that you need to still have some form of a paper trail is just evidence that it's hard for people to move on from the past. When you had this influx of citizens or, or, or um, individuals seeking citizenship in the United States towards uh, Central America and Mexico and towards the Canadian territories, um, you, you then as well started to have individuals having to brave the elements for the most part, because it was undeveloped lands, not in every single one, not, not, you know, across the board in these areas, but you had the city centers, of course, the, uh, I don't know, I can't think of any city in any of the places I just named, but the cities that you know, the, the cities that came to your mind just now when I stumbled, those cities still existed in one way, shape or form and could sustain a population or populations of varying sizes. But to have newcomers coming in, not because they were xenophobic, but because perhaps there was just no lodging, because there was, you know, no place in the inn or no, no new infrastructure having been built. That was a horrible sentence. No new houses, you know, they, you'd have to build a house or a cabin, depending on where you are in the country on this landmass. Uh, because that hadn't been done yet, people that would have moved to those places would have to get the materials to get those things done. There weren't necessarily any public works projects ready to go. You know, even the United States weren't united. By 1847, we still had another 16 years to go before the Civil War would be over. And we would have the 13 colonies that were now united 
and then looking towards expanding towards the 48 and 4950 states of the United States. Um, so this idea that it would just be easy to move to the new world wasn't a, a proper one. It wasn't a truthful one. Um, so you have individuals moving from Ireland, being pushed out of the, the uh, United States, as it were, the, the colonies, the 13 colonies, and moving instead towards the Canadian provinces and really just the Canadian territories because they weren't even full-on provinces by that time. In Manitoba at the time, or really not even Manitoba, in Quebec or Quebec, whatever your pronunciation is, they had their own version of Ellis Island called specifically Gross Isle and the Irish Memorial National Historic Site. That's what it's called now. But for the most part, just Gross Isle. Um, they were, in essence, the Canadian version of America's or New York City's Ellis Island. They handled the influx of Irish immigrants, uh, specifically uh, individuals, like I said, escaping the Great Famine between uh, 45 or 1845, 1849. Um, as it stands, instead of having it where, and this is where it gets kind of bizarre, with Ellis Island, you had hundreds of people that could be shuffled into a particular building and then processed with paperwork and then sent on a ferry to either New York City or the surrounding boroughs to then move out to the rest of the country. You could, you could have that as, as a choice uh, of, of a way to deal with an influx of immigrants. Or you could have what happened with Quebec, which was apparently having thousands of Irish individuals being quarantined on that island between 1832 and 1848. Why was that the case? For the most part, because, from what the research is saying, um, between 3,000 and 5,000 uh, Irish immigrants had been buried in the cemetery there, mostly because they died en route they died on their way there. Again, we have this ridiculous winter. Uh, you're going to have all types of cold-related fevers and cold-related viri uh, making their way uh, through the atmosphere or, you know, air, airborne or from touch or from reusing materials, whether they, whether they be blankets or cups or hats or boots, you know, um, carriages. You know, it's not like there was... Uh, a Clorox factory, you know, it, that was easily accessible. Um, I don't even know why I tried to attempt to make that some form of a joke. That was just stupid. Um, but as it stands now, it shares, it shares a peer, um, specifically Pier 21, um, with the immigration facility in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, so you had all these individuals, instead of coming to the United States, going to uh, the Northern Territories, the Northern Canadian Territories. And, you know, to, to think that they would have been able to brave the elements without proper materials, especially because they were already somewhat destitute. You know, if you're leaving your country and en masse, if you have thousands 
sometimes, maybe even tens of thousands of individuals coming from one country to a new country, and in a small time period, in a period of weeks, months, you're not going to be able to sustain that population growth, especially if you don't have, you know, computers, proper automation of factories, you know, if, if everything is still, for the most part, done by hand, with the exception of extraction of materials, you know, like a cotton gin, you know, you throw in the, the cotton flour, as it were, and it separates the husk and the seeds from the actual cotton. For the most part, with the exception of devices like that, everything had to be done by hand. So you would have a ridiculous amount of individuals trying to make their way through the wilderness, a wilderness, a wilderness that has not been uh, tamed to mankind's whim as of yet, as it were. Now, all of this might seem somewhat foreign, and, and you're thinking like, oh, wait, I, that year sounds somewhat familiar, and... I've never heard of, you know, the uh, Irish famine, the Great Irish Famine being connected to a ridiculous winter in 1847. I think of something else. Well, it's because, uh, as it stands, there was one of the most ridiculously tragic snowstorms ever in the United States and in really the entire northern uh, continent, um, North American continent, uh, especially in the Sierra Nevadas during 1846 and 1847. Now, I know that's starting to sound like it's making a lot more sense if you if you think about the placement of Nevada in the United States. If I'm not mistaken, that's West Coast, the, the time zone. I believe it's West Coast. It's not um, it's not mountain time. I mean, it's not central. It's, it's West Coast. Okie dokie. <laughs> Edit point. <laughs> okay, okay. Got a phone call. What are you gonna do? Um, so as I was saying, crazy weather, Nevada. You go up there, keep going up north. Oh, look at that, Quebec. That lines up with the bad weather. All right. You have horrible weather coming down, and chances are it's gonna be ridiculously cold in Canada. It's going to still be ridiculously cold in the mountainous ranges of Nevada, and in the Sierra Nevadas. Why is that familiar? Because of the Donner Party. Now, I've heard of the Donner Party before, but for some reason in my brain, I always think Jeffrey Dahmer. That's D-A-H-M-E-R. That's the dude that ate people and kept them in his freezer. It's totally different from the Donner Party, which technically it isn't really that different, if you think about it. But they had started off out east and were making their way west towards California and a ridiculous amount of them had died. Um, they had uh, eaten each other um, very creepily, but one would expect because they were had completely run out of food. Um, and from what it seems here, there were 17 of them, men, women, and children. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No, I counted too many. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Only seven of them made it, so half of them ended up dying. Um, they had, at one point, they had to camp in snow that was over 12 feet deep. Uh, they had to make their own snowshoes. I mean, this was a real event. Now, you can do your own research into the Donner Party because it's bizarre, but it's actually really cool.
but that all of that was just relayed to you for the simple fact that this story that we're in right now, this this particular tale that's taking place, 1897, Manitoba, Quebec. Um, it's it's a real thing. It was a real a real a real disaster that occurred, and they weren't just referencing something just offhandedly with the assumption that, oh, maybe no one will ever talk about it. To add insult to injury, as I said, Canada was just a bunch of territories, and, and you know, I mean, it is, it is now, but not as uniform as it is n nowadays. You know, uh, yes, there was an attempt uh, in 1867 to have a, a president of the Republic of Manitoba, uh, but even then, um, it was still like with the United States, where you'd have uh, attempts to have, you know, a mayorship or a governorship or a president. Um, and, and for the most part, we get defeated because of the lack of communication between the vast expanses of communities. So it's a real thing. It's a real thing that's actually really cool. Um, not, not what happened. What happened was not really cool. But the fact that it is a reality and that it wasn't just something that was made up for on a whim to just make the atmosphere of the story seem cooler. It's a it's a real thing, and it's it's just like a lot of reference points within the the DC multiverse. Even though the events that are being depicted, of course, are completely fictionalized, the idea that it has some roots in reality that perhaps these are universes that we're looking at that can be witnessed um, by us as the audience, or to just you know dreams depictions of these artists. Of, of something that was an event that maybe unfolded in a slightly different way. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not psychotic. Of course, these are all fictional stories, but it's just a way to look at this. You know, see, yes, they're all bizarre and they're creepy, but you know, these ideas come from somewhere. They come from these artists, and maybe, you know, they're having weird dreams or weird nightmares. How else would someone come up with this idea of a swamp thing, or as we'll see, an Anton Arcane? Or an animal man in charge of the, the the red, as it were. The red. I do want to say it wasn't until the third viewing that I realized that the flower died on the fourth digital page. The uh, orchid is being held and the, and the petals fall off to signify that there's a change. This, um, on, on the third page at the bottom, the... Uh, the way that this individual is resuscitated is akin to a very popular story in the 80s, pre-Flashpoint, involving Swamp Thing and Abigail Arcane. But despite her resemblance to that individual, I will move on. I love this on, on it still should be page five digitally, at the top where we see a body coming through flesh uh, the, the middle image, <laughs> it harkens to uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Total Recall. Uh, just gruesome, gruesome. And the peeling back on the next page. And the way that these pages are separated, again, on the previous page, is very uniform. Very uniform. Expected white borders um, uh, surrounding these separate images, these separate moments in time. But here, 
they're stitched together. And betwixt the stitches, we see the flesh kind of just sitting there and, and kind of almost lifelessly breathing. You know, it's, it's clearly a static image, but there's something about it that seems very much alive. And then we get the reveal of the threat, a threat that is going to succeed. And we see that the succession of evil um, being manifested by the way that the the pages are, are being split apart, that the, the, the individual frames on page six, you have a bunch of maggots crawling out of the final fl gaping piece of flesh, you know, just to show instead of having it the way we normally see it, which is what we end up seeing right here on page seven. Um, what separates the panels is, is uh, as it were, uh, plant cells, uh, cellulose and chlorophyll, uh, separating the panels as opposed to, you know, sewn together flesh, or, or rather sewn together skin on top of flesh, or uh, what we see in, in previous issues, branches of trees. Here it's just, it's just the beginning. And we have this inner monologue of this individual who is the narrator for this issue, um, really just going through meticulously why they're going to take great pleasure in devouring the hopes and desires of one Mr. Alec Holland, a really Dr. Alec Holland. Now, you know, again, as per usual, I don't like breaking down um, everything that's talked about. You know, I like to pick up the key points, the key moments. I will say, <laughs> the, the, the uh, amber enclosure behind them that's being used as a giant petri dish, as it were, really reminded me of Biodome. And, you know, that goes into a whole other conversation that I kind of want to have, but I feel like I'm going to get another phone call and I, and I feel like it's going to be another edit point. <laughs> and I don't want to get into it, but I'm going to get into it. Um, I'm probably going to bring this up in another podcast so you can continue the treasure hunt of all of these podcasts, this uh, ARG that will continue to be played bet between me and, and you, the listener. I really don't understand why people don't act like they didn't listen to Corn and Slipknot and Mudvayne and, you know, Insane Clown Posse, uh, Eminem, uh, Wu-Tang Clan. People, they, they kind of admit to it now, especially after Chappelle's show. Um, you know, The Roots, uh, Tribe Called Quest. Um, there, there's so many bands that, uh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, there's so many bands, regardless of your race, if you were aware of alternative music, whether it was rock or, or hip-hop, if you were aware of it, you know, the Fuji's, you you went out of your way to buy it. You went to the HMV or, you know, you went to Tower Records and, and played it ad nauseum to the point where the CD started to skip because the laser uh, had, had, or not because the laser had burnt into the, the, through the plastic towards the aluminum, but because you were moving around your CD player so much a portable CD Walkman, your Sony Walkman, to the point where, you know, the CD's spinning and starts scratching on the inside. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You did it. I couldn't have been the only one that was funding their careers. That's impossible. I'm not a multimillionaire, let alone a multi-billionaire. I couldn't have been funding all of their tours. And I know I wasn't just standing there in the, in the middle of Madison Square Garden when Korn was playing and they had Dead Z opening up for them. Or I was at the uh, Nokia Theater to watch Seven Dust play or to watch Mudvayne play, 
you know, people. Be honest. <laughs> okay. Third edit point. <laughs> uh, you know, and as I've always told you guys, <clears throat> I'm not editing out anything in any of these podcasts. There might be some stitching together. And hey, it's it's prudent, you know, given the way that these panels are separated in this issue. This episode is separated by life, our life. There are two things that are referenced on that page. <laughs> One is Monstera Deliciosa. Now, I've heard of that before. And in this issue, this isn't a... Well, it, it ties into what I'm going to talk about. It's It gives a firm, a firm definition as to what a part of the biorestorative formula was. The biorestorative formula, as, as you would know if you're listening to this, um, but if you don't, that's cool. It's the liquid that's used by Alec Holland uh, to try and, uh, or, or, or at least that's the liquid he was creating with his team of scientists to try and be able to create uh, verdant green lands in deserted, deserted areas, and specifically places that had, you know, um, a low soil content and, you know, high salt content, a lot of sand, you know, or places that, you know, had soil, but didn't, what is it? I think it's mostly topsoil, but it doesn't have enough of the proper soil bed under it. Um, and it's, you know, might be mostly bedrock. So for the most part is you could pour this biorestorative on the ground over uh, whatever has been planted, whatever seeds have been planted, and it expedites the growth. You know, it, it makes it so it does, there isn't a necessity of uh, light and water um, when it comes to feeding that plant. The, the plant could be fed by this biorestorative. You know, it's, it's in the name. Uh, it, restores, it restores the biology um, of, of that local area. Okay, now, again, it's another thing. I know I'd heard of Monstera Deliciosi before, and you probably have as well. It's the fruit salad plant. And actually, I guess there's three aspects to this that's really quite interesting. It is an, an edible fruit. An edible fruit. It genuinely is. Uh, it's got a bunch of different names. The fruit salad tree. Excuse me, the monster fruit. The fruit salad plant. Monsterio Delicioso. Monsterio. Uh, the Monsterio Delicioso is with an I. Between the R and the O. Monstereo is an E between the R and the O. The Mexican breadfruit, fruit, the balazo, the penglai, banana, the window leaf, um, the, the cheese plant, or the Swiss cheese plant, and the ceramin, C-E-R-I-M-A-N. Um, it, it is genuinely, like I said, you can eat the fruit. Um, funnily enough, it's gigantic. It's definitively one of those types of plants that you would see in a forest and not in the plains. Why? It grows to over 65 feet high. Again, <laughs> the monster fruit grows to over 65 feet high, or 20 meters, depending on where you live in the world. It's got ridiculously large, like, you know that the type of, um, a lot of times with large plants when they have those large leaves, I think like in Jurassic Park with the uh, stegosaurus, the six stegosaurus that they went to go after, like, check up on and they had the gigantic leaves. 
Um, where anytime you go to like a botanical garden or you go out into the woods and you see those huge leaves that are like a foot across or larger, they tend to have a very rubbery feel to them. This particular plant, instead of being rubbery and uh, like kind of waxy, the, the, the monster fruit, yes, it can be waxy, but it's known for having a leathery texture. There's something different about it. Okay. Now the cool thing about it is if you just throw a monster fruit seed at the ground, it's the coolest thing in the world. You throw it at the ground. It will go towards a shady area. It, it specifically will go to the darkest area. It will roll to the darkest area and then grow until they find a tree trunk and grow up like a vine around the tree. Again, just, this all kind of harkens to the whole ideal of swamp thing. Even though, in essence, Every plant is like swamp thing. It grows up towards the light. It, it branches out. And this particular plant is that kind of hybrid where it's a plant that has edible fruit, but also has very, very vine-like characteristics. Now, I remember seeing something on YouTube. It was very cool. It was one of those like how it works kind of videos, which are amazing. Uh, if you've never seen those, you can either go into Twitter and type that in, like as a search how it works, like three separate words or just go to YouTube, and they have all these amazingly fascinating videos. I think they might still do it on the Science Channel, which used to be Discovery Science. Um, that channel had this half-hour series where they would break up into 10-minute segments, or really 7-minute segments with 3 minutes of commercials in between each segment. 7-minute segments that would show you how things are made, so like how milk is made, or how water is purified, or how tires are made, or how air pumps are made. I don't know why I'm doing things that are all kind of revolving around milk trucks. <laughs> I haven't seen a milk truck in weeks. Um, not because they deliver milk to my house, but because I was just out about and saw a milk truck. And I was like, oh, a milk truck. Um, but anything, you know, uh, chairs, uh, doorknobs. I'm not looking at a chair or a doorknob. I literally just had that come to mind. Um, there's no chair in my room. It's just a gigantic queen-sized bed. And why am I telling you what's in my room? That's crazy talk. Um, but yeah, anything you can think of, they would have these segments. And one of the cool things that they showed was how a vine grows. They, they, they had planted a seed, you know, like in, in, a, in a pot, you know, a planter's pot, whatever, and had these two sticks that were on either side of the plant. And they were like a foot away from each other, or maybe like two feet away from each other, the, the two sticks. And, and the, the seedling would grow out, and then it would start swarming around in a circle. Like it was all time-lapsed, but it would start swarming around in a circle until it hit the stick. Like it was literally looking for foundation. And as soon as it touched it, it started swirling around. It was the coolest thing in the world that I've ever seen. You know, uh, when, when it comes to uh, time-lapse photography, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Um, not in totality. One of the coolest things I've ever seen was a Vine video that was of a song, it was, it was a T.I. and Young Thug song. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the uploaded video, but it had these two guys that were like two uncles, <laughs> or like cousins, but they were somebody, the, the uploader's uncle. And they were saying how they have, were listening to rap for the first time. And as soon as the beat dropped, they like both nodded their heads and then just kept going. Like, it's the coolest thing in the world. That to me was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. That was hilarious. Um, Calvin had actually shown that to me, like he tweeted that to me. That was, it was hilarious. Um, but yes, back to this. Uh, 
these plants are capable of crawling along the ground <laughs> and then finding a tree to grow up the, the side of that. I don't know. That is just the damn the coolest thing in the world. Uh, usually people will get monster fruits and you and there's a good chance you've seen them. Why? Because the leaves are the exact same type of leaves that have been drawn on almost, if not every single cover of this Swamp Thing series up until this point. And the zero issue, of course, it's, it's, it's showing you things that happened before the Swamp Thing came about. But all of the, you know, the page separators, if you weren't looking at an orchid, you know, a flower, and even the flowers on this plant, it looks very similar to an orchid. Um, all those gigantic broad leaves that look like rib cages, uh, that's what the, the, the gigantic leaf looks like on a monster fruit. And the leaves tend to be almost heart-shaped. And they're about, they're anywhere from 9 to 35 inches long. And anywhere from 9 to roughly, what is that, divided by 3, 9 and like 25 inches wide. Just gigantic, so basically like 2 foot by 3 foot leaves. Just beautifully gigantic. The fruit, which is in, in, intriguing in itself, can end up being up to, what is that, about 10 inches long, 2 inches wide. <laughs> uh, and it looks like a, a, an ear of corn. It genuinely looks like a giant green ear of corn with a bunch of hexagonal scales. So if anything, it, it looks like a, a pine cone before it's turned brown. And you can, you can actually eat them. Like once the scales start to go up, and so it's again using Wikipedia as a reference point, uh, once they start to lift up and it starts to smell, not as bad as a, um, a as Dorian root, uh, but apparently bad enough. Once it starts to smell, you wrap it up in a paper bag, or I guess if it was before paper bags were being used, if we're, look, if we're looking back as a reference point to like the 1840s, uh, you would just wrap it up in leaves. You would wrap it up in the leaves of the monster fruit to just you know, section off that smell away from people, um, have it stored somewhere. And once the scales start to come off or you, br you know, you can either brush them off or just they've all fallen off and then you can get at the flesh, you know, the actual fruit part of that weird looking green ear of corn. And apparently it's got the texture and taste of a pineapple. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now be careful if for whatever reason you're traveling in where it's normally found, which is uh, in southern Mexico, uh, all the way down south to Panama, uh, Hawaii, the Seychelles, Ascension Island, and the Society Islands. If you're anywhere near there and you're like, ooh, you know, <laughs> a monster fruit, don't just eat it. You have to do that process. If it's green or it's, you know, it's starting to ripen and with fruits, for the most part, it's turning from green to its final color before over-ripening. You know, so, you know, like when it starts to get moldy, so like with banana, it goes from green to yellow or with plantains, green to yellow. With this, it's the same thing. It goes from green to yellow. Like with, I just found out strawberries go from green to red. It's the coolest thing in the world. Like they grow straight up in the ground, like from a vine thing, blah, blah. Uh, and they go from green and they just plump up and they turn red. I don't know. It's so cool. Anyway, strawberry is a berry. It's not, it's not a, a regular fruit. It's just, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And a berry is a berry because the seeds are on the outside. So technically, the monster fruit is a monster berry, because that's how you differentiate fruits. Fruits have the pit on the inside, like a cherry, um, a blueberry. Why did I say that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, blueberries. I was thinking raspberry. Yeah, cherry, blueberry, uh, peach, nectar, apples. Those are all berries because the seeds are on the inside. I can't believe I just said that. I messed that up. They're all fruits because the seed is on the inside. A berry is a berry because the seeds are on the outside. So a pineapple is a berry. And in this case, a monster fruit is a berry. Even though it's a fruit, it's a berry because the seeds, for the most part, the scales that could be used to reseed. I take that back. That's That was my assumption that because of the way it's done, but I think because I, I remember seeing one of those cut open and I think the inside, it's like a kiwi, if you cut it lengthwise, or I, I take that back if you cut it vertically, uh, you, you think the inside is like a banana or like I said, like a kiwi. And I think the seeds are on the inside. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that slight bit of inf misinformation, but it does taste like a pineapple. I remember eating one before. It tastes like a pineapple and it says it tastes like pineapple. But if you don't do that process of wrapping it up and allowing it to, in essence, ripen away from its life force, you know, like cut off the tree. Uh, if you don't allow the seeds to come off and then start, you know, like to shuck it and then as you would at your corn and then start getting at the meat of the fruit. If you don't do that, you can have an irritated throat, a very irritated throat and the leaves and then those little bristle things can make your skin very irritated for the most part, because both of those things they exude, like they secrete potassium oxalate. It's not something you really want to ingest. Nothing wrong with potassium. It's the combining of those two atoms to form the molecule, potassium oxalate. And if I'm not mistaken, that would be KO5? I apologize. I should know that, KO5. I should, I should know that. I'm trying to think what the, what the 8 is like a late, because I know I'd is two. Hmm. It's it, I'd is two, unless it's got mono at the front, then it's one. A-T-E is a three. But if it's a late, I believe it's five. Or whatever, not whatever. Shame on me for not knowing that. But it's potassium oxalate. That's what's actually bad for you. So it's actually like semi-poisonous. Like it's it's not good for you. You will get you will have in essence a rash in your throat or a rash in your skin if you eat this fruit and it hasn't been prepared properly. Which you know, again, goes to this whole swamp thing aspect that there's there's all these aspects to this character that's so similar to this real world fruit now it, it ends up growing best between 68 and 86 degrees fahrenheit and it's killed by frost which again goes to the beginning of this particular issue um and and how um unlikely it would have been for the swamp thing of the 1897 Manitoba era and area uh, to have been thriving at that time in that area. Um, but just remember, it grows between 68 and 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. But it can also, the, the fruit itself is also used in Mexico as a leaf or a root infusion and to like put in a tea to be drunk daily to relieve arthritis. In Colombia, 
the company, <laughs> the country, not the company. I really just did a Freudian slip. It's used as a decorative plant, like a house plant. And in Martinique, the root of the plant, not the fruit, but the root, is used to make a remedy for snake bites. Now, Martinique, that name might be slightly familiar to you. It's, it wasn't familiar to me at all. Uh, Martinique is just an island in the Caribbean, or Caribbean, depending on who you are. Uh, it's, it's one of the Windward Islands, and it's north of St. Lucia, northwest of Barbados, and to the south of Dominica. Um, <clears throat> most of the people there speak French or French Creole. Now, as I said, you know, just remember their whole 68 to 86 degrees, that palindrome of temperature uh, bracketing. This plant in the story is inside this, this dome, this polygonal amber glass dome, and thriving at 125 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's just to show, you know, again, it's like trying to have these real world applications in this fictional story that the thing that they're creating is genuinely a miracle, a man-made miracle, a human-made miracle, because that plant should not exist, especially on its own. It shouldn't be able to thrive in this completely uh, acrid desert recreation. And yet, it survives. And another thing I want to point out, when the glasses clink at the bottom of the page, on page eight, only four of them say two monsters, but there's six glasses. So one of them isn't saying anything, and the other one just says always in a very creepy way. Another beautiful splash page that's just, you know, creepy. What are you going to do? It's just the way that they're interpreting things. On the left side, a bloody body being dragged with the rib cage exposed and the flesh sloshing along the ground, creating a trail with the head, a horrid blood-stained trail. This is a beautiful, like, 1920s type car, though, <laughs> in the top left. Sorry to try and find the happiness in the macabre, but it's, it's the case. And on the right side, another body being dragged, the one that had just been um, defeated in Manitoba, just showing the two, two eras in time being stitched together. And that's how it's portrayed here. When you follow down these stitches and, 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 and exposed flesh betwixt art-infused skin, there's a bloody centipede that crawls out of the bottom orifice. Again, creepy. Creepy as fuck. And of course, it could have just stopped there. Something as graphic as that. And it, and, and it didn't. We, we had the narrator continuing, continuing to do so, speaking of one insta instance when they found a potential avatar of the green or the red. It's not, it's not denoted exactly which one it is. It's just a, a an, what is this, maternity ward. I was going to say an infancy ward, a maternity ward. And they let loose the representation of the rot. I don't want to describe exactly what it is because it's creepy looking, very creepy looking. And what ends up happening is something that you would just never see in anything but a horrible, horrible, decrepit, gruesome, soul eviscerating horror film. The likes of perhaps a puppet master, uh, any of those uh, 
films or uh, a Hellraiser, a Hellraiser 2. Um, think Dr. Trenard uh, in the Leviathan, or near the Leviathan, as were a puppet of the Leviathan, before he became a servant of the Leviathan. Uh, the way that that was portrayed, and I'm talking about the unedited cut, not the cut that would have aired on like a, not USA, but like a sci-fi channel. Even though, yes, I know it's all the same company, uh, still, uh, it just, I don't think Hellraiser's ever aired on sci-fi channel. Um, or maybe if it aired on like a, like a Showtime or the movie channel, perhaps. I feel like I've seen Hellraiser Bloodlines on Stars years ago when I still paid for cable and I just didn't get everything online. Because it's easier. The apps that they have nowadays are just beautiful. Uh, but the way that this triumph is depicted is horrible. So horrible that there's absolutely no dialogue. There's no inner monologue. There are no words. Not only because there's really no words that need to be said by any of the characters in this scene, but no words can be used to describe the horror that's depicted. It's it's. It took me aback, and the face is very reminiscent of one Frederick Krueger. Just it's a it's a horrible horrible image, and then just just for you out there that's paying attention, just pay attention to the ring to pinky fingers on the intruder, and then as well, I'm, I'm going to keep it at that. It's just I don't want to spoil it. It's just just look, this is that's horrible, just freaking horrible. And so the story progresses. Again, I don't, I don't like spoiling any of this stuff, but we've seen that house before. We've seen this house before. Um, in flashbacks, if I'm not mistaken, in the previous 12 issues. Not in the first one, of course. No? In the first one, yes. We saw it in the first one. I believe so. No, we didn't. No, because that goes into this whole story. Anyway, uh, the bottom image. Even though we have these other images where there's no words, we have another one that's kind of an over-the-shoulder shot, even though it's to the right of the shoulder. It's borderline, borderline third-person view. Um, very, very akin to a video game. Um, and this would this would be an amazing... Uh, you could say that about all these podcasts. Any, any graphic novels that are covered, they would be amazing video games. They would be amazing miniseries. God's comma, you know, miniseries or miniseri. I like that. Um, or... Uh, films, feature-length films. They would just be amazing. But they're just not, not as of yet. Not as of yet. Stay tuned, people. They're coming. I know they are. Uh, but I just want to point out, even though that is that is a very stark scene that we're looking at here, there's an old-time alarm clock on the desk. Like if you have a digital a digital uh, thing, Bob, <laughs> a tablet, or if you're reading this on your phone. I know people read graphic novels on their phones. I've seen it. I've, hell, I used to do it when I had... When I still uh, carried around an iPod uh, Touch, I had an iPod Touch, and then I got an iPhone 4, and I was like, oh, I'd make all my phone calls on my iPad. But anyway, um, I would read them if for whatever reason I was using my iPad for something else or I left it at home. I would read issues, you know, just because you could go panel by panel because it's just zoom in and stuff. But it's awesome to look at on your tablet, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but yes, you just you zoom in, and the tiny little old-time alarm, old-timey alarm clock on the side desk. It's really cool. I like it when little touches like that exist. 
um, the, the action progresses. And again, we get a very, very visceral image. Uh, this time on page 12, on the left side, that left middle panel, uh, akin to Two-Face, but even more gruesome. If Two-Face was made to look like this in the graphic novels, I don't think people would be able to sleep properly at night. He, he would be elevated as a villain. And I must, uh, I must say, to quote Ed Grimley, that's right, I love SCTV. Um, there, he probably is depicted as such. Um, I've bought them to keep up the Batman and Robin series. At a certain point, there was a turning point. That's the best way to say that without spoiling anything. And Two-Face was involved. And he was involved for a few issues. And I feel like I read one issue that was during... What would it have been? Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. It was right before... No, it was during Trinity War. I take it back. It was after Trinity War. And... Yes, it was during the event that came right after Trinity War. I don't want to spoil anything. But Two-Face came into prominence. And I remember seeing the way his face was depicted and, and, and being disturbed by it. And pleasantly disturbed. Because yeah, I was like, oh, wow, that's an efficient way to draw a bizarre character. And if they took it to that next level where they were like, okay, we're not even going to try and have kids reading this. Like, this is going to be full-on mature audiences. The way that this character is is drawn, I think would be an, an intriguing reference point for that character. You know, um, perpetually bleeding, you know, as if they have a runny nose. You know, I've always thought that would be an amazing way to depict Two-Face, to just have it where he's just, he's kind of just constantly leaking on one side of his face. Because if he's got that exposed skin, there's gotta be a reason why it doesn't heal over. Like scientifically speaking, he's not supernatural. He's a human being. So if he has this exposed flesh, it has to either continue to try and heal itself or be rotting away. And if it was rotting away, it's a skull, that would mean that he only has but so long to live. So it can't be rotting away. It has to be alive. It has to be festering. There have to be, you know, flies and, and maggots that have to be shooed away to keep the flesh viable. And, and probably but so much flesh, mostly exposed bone. And only having the flesh be where the... The, you know, the, there are joints, so where the jaw connects to the skull or the gums on the teeth. And then even then, probably the farther back you go until you get to the the, the mandible connection, as it were, um, having less and less gums because of the accident, uh, the explosion or or vat of acid, whatever you want to use as the, the catalyst for that change for Harvey Dent. Um, I just always thought that would be a fascinating way to show it. Um, don't get me wrong, I love the way it was depicted in, in, in The Dark Knight. That was a great way to depict it. I'm just talking about in the graphic novels, not, not on, on film. Um, the on page 13, this is. <laughs> 13, this is. My Yoda. Horrible, horrible Yoda. Um, the woman reminded me of... The and I should remember her name because I can't remember her name, but the woman who came back from hell in Hellraiser Two, Hellbound. Uh, what what she does there reminds me of that, and it reminds me really of even Hellraiser One, with um, Uncle Carl, I believe that's what his name was, Carl, uh, the guy who was messing with the box that brought all of the hell down upon that family. Um, something that she does there in, on this page, that just reminded me of that. And I'm sure, I'm sure, Kano, 
uh, thought about that when this issue came around, Cana with a K. Um, and perhaps Scott Snyder did. Perhaps it was already in the script. <laughs> Not in the script. In the script. <laughs> Again, I'm just full of bad puns, people. Full of bad puns. Oh, look at that. Oh, another edit point. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Telling you, man. It just works out. This is a stitched together episode about a stitched together graphic novel. So, two hours after the fact, where was I? Hellraiser. The artist <laughs> clearly must have watched Hellraiser. I've been influenced, influenced by it. And so, we have these events play out with all these different uh, panels broken up by these cells that are growing and growing and growing. If you look at them, they start off in, in, in one state, as it were, and they seem to be glomming on to each other. And, you know, the main character, he kind of mulls over the, the pangs that he's been having, these mental pangs that have been calling out to him. And we find the catalyst for Swamp Thing, the thing that brought him to what he, what he is now, what we know and love to be, this, this entity of the green that we all know and love. Uh, this uh, page 18, uh, this corpse being enveloped by the green, uh, all of these different branches instead of just cells, breaking up all of these different images, some wordless scenes, others narrated by the nefarious antagonist, and some very familiar images, but some of them are just bizarre. And there's a brain with these vines reaching out to all the different folds. Uh, there's one with a, a nerve, a couple nerve endings just being enveloped and, and uh, intertwined by vines. Um, it's, it's, it, it's unique, utterly unique. And then the symbology of just dead cells now going from these chlorof chlorophyll-ridden cells to you know, completely dead, grayed out uh, vessels of oxygen, vessels of life. Uh, it's it's the stark contrasts. Uh, if 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 you're barely paying attention to them, but if you notice the subtleties, it's fascinating. And I think the substitute this time around, if we go to uh, page <laughs> twenty, um, instead of the prerequisite toad, which we have gotten. If I'm not mistaken, in every single one of the last 12 issues, um, thanks to Mr. Paquette, uh, instead, this time around, we get a monkey. <laughs> we get a monkey in the left side of the, the panel, page 18 at the top. Um, and a nice little detail, the woodpecker on the bottom left. He's pecking away. We get those those lines. I always forget what they're called, but those lines that show movement uh, and, and, and then the lines that show, like, contact. <laughs> and I think the bird just flies away when it realizes, like, oh my god, this tree is talking. It's just, it's, um, it's, it's awesome. It's ridiculously awesome. Um, and again, don't like to spoil how things end off, but there's a nice reveal that shows you why the last 12 issues, as it were, played out the way that they did. It's awesome. It was an epiphany to me, honestly, this third time reading it. That's usually it. I buy it and I read the issue. Or at least that was the case up until starting all these different podcasts. I would 
buy the issue on Wednesday, read it like, literally before sundown, read all the issues that I got, um, and then pick it up again a couple months later to try and see if I got a different, a different interpretation of what was interpreted on the digital page. Um, that that's almost always the case. Like I mentioned, uh, in I mentioned it in Bennett and the Queen, the fifth episode. That fifth episode was Gouge Away. Yes, Gouge Away. That episode. Um, I had mentioned how I want to go back and reread Action Comics. Grant Morrison's run from issues one to eighteen because I just read it once through, um, and it was just blown away. It was just it was, it was just amazingly intricate and beautiful. Um, but with the exception of that, most other graphic novels I read them twice. And this third time around, I was like, "Oh my good lord!" You know, by the stars, I, I haven't I haven't noticed that. That's why everything played out the way that it did. It was just it's it's revelatory, you know. And that's what that's what these graphic novels are all about. Is is as I'm always saying, it's I'm beating a a drum here, beating the same drum, putting the needle on the record. It's not a dead horse, but you know where I'm going with this. Um, there are just, there are beautiful things inside these pages. And, and if you look at them just the right way, and perhaps stare at them just long enough, you can find something within yourself. And isn't that the point of these things? Is that the point of art? If anything, I would say... Um, determination would be the theme of this particular issue. And and the theme has... It, well, I was going to say it has nothing to do with the protagonist, but that's not true, because the obvious determination is the antagonist of this issue, uh, Mr. Arcane. Um, as we've seen, it would be over the course of at least a hundred years, that's what we're looking at, uh, the, the, the rot pursuing the red and the green. Um, this, this endless pursuit, and, and seemingly endless stream of winds on the side of the rot. Um, this determination to just destroy the earth, but for no other reason other than just having a quest for power. On the flip side of that coin, uh, you, you have Alec Holland and that character's determination to appease his own mental strife, in this case being called out to, and believing that if he can find a way to um, repopulate the planet with foliage, he could perhaps uh, appease uh, said voices. Um, that determination, usually uh, because of the connotation of the word, w one would expect usually would have a positive outcome. In the terms of this particular issue, Determination on both of their parts ends up giving them something that they did not expect that they would get. Something that they'd end up having to um, reconcile with and ultimately deal with in a way that was completely uh, out of left field. So yeah, I would say that definitely it's determination for this episode. You know, And if you disagree with me on that, or if you agree, or if you want to talk about lentils, whatever the case is, you know, I'm... I'm so pleased. So thank you to everybody, honestly, to all of you guys out there that have been saying all the kind words. Um, it's just, it's very heartwarming, very heartwarming. And I will continue to do these until I give my last breath, he says, afraid of his, his own uh, luck. <laughs> It'll conk out before you can finish this goddamn episode. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you want to say or any of that kind of stuff or 
negative stuff, whatever the case is, darkercornerscast at gmail.com. Darkercornerscast at gmail.com. All lowercase, all one word. That's the email account for the show. Twitter account, Darker Corners, capital D, capital C, at Darker Corners. You know, you can get updates, weird little tweets that I'll throw out there, you know, things that pertain to the show in one way, shape, or form. You know, things from around the globe, or even if it's just things pertaining specifically to shows. Um, when it comes to the Constantine show, I've usually just been attributing those those types of tweets to the Constant Tome Twitter account, but, you know... Who knows when the Constantine issues start popping up and I may start to see some similarities between that, those, those issues, that series and the new series on television. I may start pointing those things out and doing so on Twitter. But until then, you want to find some stuff that has to do with the show at Darker Corners, capital D, capital C. And then, you know, go over to iTunes, give the show five stars because five is a great number. It's actually not a great number, but it's the highest number you can give. Ten's an awesome number. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying, people. Uh, no, no real plugs, as per usual. Just you know, Nick Antoine, uh, N I C, space A N T O I N E, Nick Antoine, N I C space A N T O I N E. You throw that little bad boy, that throw that name into the search area in iTunes, all the podcasts will pop up. Um, there's two new podcasts coming up. <laughs> oh my God. There's two new podcasts coming up. Uh, the Morning Star, and that's going to be about Lucifer. It's going to end up being 75 episodes. Uh, all about that Lucifer graphic novel series. I bought that a long time ago, and I just realized that there's a good chance there's going to be a correlation. Correlation, sorry about that. Uh, there's going to be an appearance of Lucifer, and specifically that version of Lucifer in the Constantine show. Uh, why specifically that one? That, that graphic novel, Lucifer, was uh, printed, was produced by DC Comics, specifically under their Vertigo imprint, under Vertigo Comics. Um, so if you want to go check some of that stuff out, and any of the stuff, whether it's anything from Darker Corners that we, that we talk about over here, you know, Justice League Dark, Swamp Thing, and subsequently, you know, Phantom Stranger just released one of those episodes, um, and then Pandora's going to be coming up in Constantine, any of that stuff, dccomics.com forward slash comics dccomics.com forward slash comics. Uh, you can get all your stuff there or go to you know, a local shop. It is what it is. Um, but uh, that character of Lucifer is going to be appearing uh, in one way, shape, or form. I heard in the rumor, in the rumor mill. And I kind of wanted to just um, get ahead of the curve like I did with everything else. Like with Constantine, I started that up like a month or two before the news came out that they were going to have a Constantine show on NBC. So you know, just want to stay ahead of the curve. And I had mentioned this in Fair Play Pod, I believe. I wanted to do a Wonder Woman podcast. Yes, you can say what you will about a man doing a podcast about Wonder Woman, but why not have it from the male perspective, especially from a male who thoroughly enjoys not only the current run with Cliff Chiang as the artist, penciler, you know, the penciler and the anchor, and Brian Azzarello as the writer. Brian Azzarello is currently writing in tandem with Jeff Lemire and Dan Jurgens, a bunch of people uh, writing... Uh, Future's End, which I am thoroughly in love with. And I feel like I do like a special episode that would be like super long, maybe a two-parter for Darker Corners that would go into there. Maybe even, I don't know, that's that's tentative, but going into that. But anyways, um, I've always loved Wonder Woman as a character. 
specifically as a character archetype. Not in the sense of like, oh, I love this character the way that, you know, I love John Constantine as a first and foremost and Superman a very close second. Um, not in that sense, because I, 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 I want to aspire to certain aspects of those personalities, um, whatever they may be. Um, I don't aspire to the personalities of Wonder Woman. I see it as, oh, if if there were to be a female superhero, that's the type of female superhero I'd like to see in real life. You know, that's why people read these graphic novels. That's why people read novels, you know, whether it's reading, you know, um, Anna Karenina or War and Peace or Sin Les Miserables or, uh, you know, Raisin in the Sun. That was a bad example. I was about to say Doll's House, too. That's a bad example as well. Um, Nutcracker. Hell, you know, that people want to be able to see what they see as a representation of art in real life. Or at least have the imagine the thoughts and have it reside in their imagination that it's a possibility that they could come across something like that. You know, that's why on the converse, people go to horror movies. They go there to get scared, to be afraid, to get that fear out of themselves in the hopes that they would never come across a pinhead or ever come across a Michael Myers or Fred Krueger. You know, their hopes are they would never do that. And then they see ways that people that are stuck in that situation get out of it. It sticks in the back of their head. So even if it's a 1% chance that for whatever reason they come across a, 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 a Le Marchand configure, you know, a lament configuration. I was going to say Le Marchand, but a lament configuration, you know, a puzzle box from Hellraiser, that they would know I'm not going to play with that thing. That being said, I have one, and I have on many occasions, especially when I was in New York, played with it whilst on the subway to scare the shit out of other people. I'll tell you, that's some of the best fun I've ever had in my life. Um, because people genuinely believe it's going to do something. And I know it's just a piece of wood with brass. Like it's not even a working puzzle box that you fuck around with the circles. People are like, are you an idiot? Like people really getting agitated, like get away from me with that. It's amazing. People really have visceral reactions to art, you know, and I have one with Wonder Woman and just the way that this new 52 series is going, the way that they've intertwined, you know, ancient Greek philosophy, ancient Greek gods, um, modern day social mores, all that stuff. It's just, it's fascinating. So it's going to be a podcast, uh, that's all about the male interpretation of femininity in modern day society. And it's called of truth of truth. So by the time this episode comes out of truth might not be ready to go because it's already been, uh, submitted, you know, so it might take, it might arrive comic book day like Wednesday it might arrive on uh, the day of the dead on Thursday but it'll be there it's just put in my name but the morning star is already there I've already seen uh, there's the uh, test episodes you can enjoy that little Easter egg I've done that with all these episodes there's always been a test episode before it's good to go um, but the first episode of the morning star which will be all about interpretations of Satan and interpretations of Lucifer the morning star himself throughout history and as well as just talking about the themes in each of the graphic novels that's going to be released on halloween uh, the first episode of of truth that's probably going to be released on the day of the dead on this thursday it'll probably be the same day that you can see it in the itunes store but nevertheless put in nick antoine n-i-c space a-n-t-o-i-n-e if you ever forget how to spell it in any way shape or form podcast you have right now has my name at the top somewhere in there just do a search it's all there just thanks for listening people it's cool i love all you guys you guys are awesome 
Um, I don't have, I had a, somebody emailed me about that. Like, oh, what, what do you call your fans? I just uh, stick with fans. That's cool. Like, you guys are cool. You guys are cool people. I'm just a host. I'm, you know, it's, I'm not really doing anything but just talking, you know, and you guys are listening and giving me amazing feedback. Um, but I, I don't have a name. I just, because it would be too much to remember. It's Darker Corners and Fair Play Pod and Bennett and the Queen, <laughs> Constant Tome, and now Of Truth and The Morning Star, you know. Uh, and and uh, I'll get even more into that, like with Of Truth, I'll explain like the, the meaning of the title and all that jazz in the first episode and talk about all the cool stuff. And then um, with The Morning Star, I'll get way deep into that because um, I have a lot of history with the... Um, the entity known as Lucifer. It's the best way to say that. So, until next time, peoples, I have been Nick Antoine. You have been the unwitting listener. Thank you for listening. Step into the dark.